Father, we are so glad that we belong to you today, and you are good, and you're sovereign, and you, Lord, take us through so many things, and we thank you that so many of the things you brought us to, we can actually look back on and laugh about. And Lord, we just uh, trust you with those things right now that we're not going to be able to laugh about. We just ask you to just move in our lives in ways that really do bring about your glory and your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that you'd use times like this as we gather around your word to really speak into our lives by the power of your spirit and to change us and make us more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to remind you as we uh, you know, have services, every time we gather, we gather in Jesus' name. And Jesus said where two or more gather in his name, he'll be there in our midst. So always keep that in mind that Jesus is in the room. Jesus is in the room. So we don't want to ever talk to him and talk about him like he's not in the room. I mean, he's in the room. He's here. And he's the head of the church, and he's, he called this meeting. He called it. It looks like we called it, but he calls this, this meeting, and he calls it with purpose in mind. There's things he wants to do in our lives. There's things he wants to impart in each one of us. He wants to accomplish some things in this hour. He has no desire to see us waste this time. So he's called the meeting, he's here, and he now wants to minister to each one of us. And so we have expectation that he will do that. So let me just encourage you to just really have your heart now so inclined to receive from Christ. So let's go ahead and just put your hand on your heart, if you would, for a moment. Lord Jesus, we ask you to accomplish what you want to accomplish in our hearts and our lives today. And make us the kind of people you want us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. So we've been doing this series called God's Grand Story. And it's really the story of the Bible. God's Grand Story, the story of the Bible, the story that starts with creation and starts with the creation of Adam and Eve. And I want to remind you that that story that starts with creation has an appointed end goal, that God is taking history somewhere. And he, in his overarching providence, is going to guide history to, an, a, to his desired end goal. And his appointed end goal of where he's taking history, he tells us in Numbers 14.21. Numbers 14.21. Indeed, as I live, God says, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So that is where God is taking history. So I want us to make sure we keep this in mind as we read our Bibles, as we watch the news, as we live our lives, that God has an end goal. And he's committed. He's committed to arranging and disposing of all the events of history and of our lives to reach that goal. He will reach it. He will do it. Now, from time to time, history gets off track and God has to do some correction on the course of history. In fact, we don't get very far in Genesis before we see that. Genesis chapter 6, we see that mankind has gotten so evil 
that God cannot get where he wants history to get to unless he intervenes, and he intervenes, and he actually judges the entire human race, wipes them out except for Noah and his family, and of course saves them on the ark in the midst of the Noahic flood, and then he starts over, headed in the direction of one day the earth being filled with the glory of the Lord. So again, history moves on from Genesis 6, and we don't get very far before God has to intervene again because history is going a direction. He cannot get history there without intervening. Genesis chapter 11, we find out that mankind is not filling the earth with the glory of the Lord. Rather, they're all together at the Tower of Babel, and they're building this tower to glorify man, not to glorify God. So God has to enter in and confuse the languages of the people and to, to cause them to have different ethnicities and then to scatter them across the entire globe. So he starts over again, getting things headed in the right direction so that one day the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. So then we get to Genesis chapter 12, and we have the scattered nations now around the, around the, the earth. And God now picks a man, one man by the name of Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and promises that he's going to make him a great nation that will actually be a blessing to all the nations of the earth so that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so the nation that Abraham gives birth to, of course, is the nation Israel. And Israel has an assignment. And most people really miss this when they think about Israel being God's chosen people. They miss that God chose them with an assignment in mind. And the assignment was that they, Israel, would be a blessing to all of the nations of the world so that one day the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so Israel as a nation, we, just come, we see things move through the Old Testament until they decide they ask God for a king. They want a king. God gives them a king. They want a king because the nations around them have a king. God gives them a king, King Saul, and then there's King David, then there's King Solomon. But after King Solomon, there is a split in the nation of Israel. So Solomon, this king, who had a divided heart, as we read about his life, actually, he sets the stage for a divided kingdom. And there is a split in Israel. And the nine northern tribes split from the two southern tribes. Of course, there's the 12th tribe. The tribe of the Levites is spread out throughout the split. But the nine northern tribes is now going to be called Israel. And the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin will be called Judah. So when you read through First and Second Kings in your Bible, First and Second Chronicles in your Bible, it talks about Israel and talks about Judah. It talks about the northern and the southern kingdoms because there's been a split. There's been a fracture in Israel. So the nation, Israel, that is called to be separate and distinct of all the nations and then to be a blessing to all the nations of the world, is now itself split. It is split 
And it's not communicating blessing to the nations of the earth in its fractured and compromising condition. And then gives itself, both the northern and southern kingdoms, then give themselves to the idols of the nations surrounding them. And so God has to do two things. He has to try to call his people back to himself first. And then, and then heal the fracture between himself and them. And then he's got to get them back on mission. So God begins to call them back to himself. And what does he do? How does he do that? He sends prophets. He sends prophets to the northern kingdom. He sends prophets to the southern kingdom, the split kingdom, to call them back to himself. And so when we read our Bibles, we come across all these prophetic books. We come across these prophets. Now, we come across Elijah and Elisha, two, you know, bigger-than-life kind of prophets, but they didn't write down, at least we have no record of anything they wrote down of their prophecies. But they were prophesying during this time of this divided kingdom. But then there's these other prophets that God raises up. You have these other books in your Bible, like the prophets of Hosea and Amos. They are going to prophesy to the northern kingdom before the Assyrian invasion. And then you have these prophets who prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah. Prophets like Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, all those prophets that are in your Bibles, who wrote, who wrote they, they were prophesying to the southern kingdom about the fact that the Babylonians are going to come and sack their city, ransack it, overcome them. They had a chance to repent. The prophets start off by giving them a chance to repent. But eventually the prophets begin to just talk about the judgments coming because you won't repent. So a lot of your Bible is this happening. I mean, you need to have the context for that. Now, there were some prophets that simply God just sent them directly to the nations. Prophets like Jonah and Nahum, God sent them to Assyria, to Nineveh. Prophets like, prophet like Obadiah, God sent him to Edom. And so we have all these books in our Bible, you know, that actually we need to have the context of who these prophets are and why we have their writings, because they were prophesying to this divided kingdom, a northern and southern divided kingdom that was not accomplishing what God wanted them to do. So God is calling them back to himself. They're not listening, so he has to bring discipline and judgment. But God still has his end goal. That one day the whole world will be filled with the glory of the Lord. What I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of hone in on one of those prophets that God sent directly to the nations. I want to focus on the prophet Jonah this morning. Jonah was sent by God to the nation of Assyria, to the city of Nineveh. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll show these verses on the screen as well as we walk through the book of Jonah because the book of Jonah is going to tell us a lot about the heart of God for the whole world. It's also going to tell us a lot about a prophet who didn't feel the same way. 
Jonah chapter 1, let's just jump in there. Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, that's Spain, from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Nineveh. I mean, the very word Nineveh sent chills up and down the spine of every person that lived in that region of the world at that time. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the evil empire, Assyria. In fact, it was like the Al-Qaeda, Taliban, Hezbollah, Hamas, all together of the 8th century B.C. By the time Jonah started his prophecy business, so to speak, the Assyrians had already a hundred years worth of atrocities under their belts. And all the surrounding nations were well aware of them. Now, it wasn't enough for the Assyrians to just do these barbaric things that they did. They wrote about them. We have records of that because they etched in stone what they did. They did things like they would capture their enemies and then they would, while they're still alive, they would take, they would cut off their limbs. They would gouge out their eyes. They would cut off their nose. They'd cut off their ears and they would rip out their tongues. And then while they're still alive, if they're still alive at that point, they have them stretched out and then they fillet them like a fish. In fact, one of the kings of the kingdom of Assyria at that time, named Ashurna Sarpal II, he bragged about it. Here's what he wrote. Here's a quote from the 8th century B.C. He said, I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others' noses, ears, extremities. I gouged out their eyes. I made a pile of living and then a pile of heads. And I hung their heads on trees around the city. So Nineveh, we need to understand something about Nineveh. Nineveh had no shame. They had no conscience. They had no moral compass. They had no compassion. Every nation in that region feared Nineveh, feared the Ninevites and hated them. And knew that it was probably just a matter of time before they came knocking on their door as they were conquering the nations around them. So the fact that Jonah wanted to stay clear of Nineveh would not have seemed like an unwise decision for anybody in that region at that time. It would have made sense to them. So let me just ask you this question. If there was a meeting going on today and one of our drones located a building where the leadership of Al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the leadership of Iran were all together in one building. 
Would you rather see that building bombed or would you rather see them get another chance to repent and be saved? Are there some people that you would rather see judged than forgiven? Well, that's how Jonah felt. And that's why Jonah did what he did. I mean, Jonah's decision to escape would have made sense to everybody except God. God was determined to get Jonah to Nineveh. Let's pick it up in verse 4, Jonah chapter 1. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. And there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below in the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, how is it that you're sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So now the sailors knew who the problem was, but they didn't know why. So Jonah explains to them why. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? Because he had explained to them. How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea has become increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. So we know now this storm was not simply a matter of a cold air mass hitting a warm air mass. But this storm actually was a matter of Jonah's disobedience slamming into the mission of God. So God sent a storm. He sent a storm to get Jonah back on track. Sometimes God sends storms into the lives of his people to get them back on track. And some of you might be in a storm right now. And you need to at least ask the question, God, did you send this storm to get me back on track? So they pick up Jonah, they throw him into the stormy sea. And now Jonah, we don't know how long he possibly try to tread water in, sea, in a very stormy sea, but he starts to sink. He starts to drown. And he starts to pray to God. Chapter 2 tells us some of the things he said. He prayed to God. And then God delivers him in a very unusual way. Jonah 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, 
And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. So Jonah, as he's sinking and praying and turning purple, all of a sudden, you know, this giant sea creature opens up his jaws and swallows him whole. I mean, yikes! I mean, that must have been unpleasant, but it saved his life. And then Jonah discovers that being inside a fish belly provides a good place to reconsider the call of God. And that's what Jonah does. He reconsiders the call. And again, some of you might be in a place where God has you kind of reconsidering the call of God on your life. So anyways, while in there, somehow, God, Jonah said something to God in the midst of those three days, more or less said, God, uh, if you give me another chance, I'll do it. Something like that, he said to God. And as soon as God heard that, then the fish vomits Jonah up onto dry land. Which, by the way, I would have loved to have been there. That must have been quite a sight to behold. Not just him being spit up, but the condition he must have been in after being spit up. Being three days inside of a fish. I mean, surely he had stomach acids of the fish had kind of burned his skin. His hair was probably a matted mess. He had to smell like fish guts. I can see him walking on the beach with seagulls dive-bombing him, trying to get pieces of fish off him, waving his arms. It must have been quite a sight. But eventually, he probably gets himself cleaned up, gets some fresh clothes, and God gives Jonah a second chance and a recall. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 and through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So now Jonah is going to walk to Nineveh, which is going to be about 600 miles. So it's going to take a while for him to get there. So he finally arrives in Nineveh, and you gotta, you got to believe, he's, he's, just a, he's just a human, he's a man. you got to believe that he's probably pretty nervous about walking through Nineveh preaching this message that God was giving him. But he marches through preaching probably the shortest sermon in history. God tells him what to say. Jonah 3, verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his sermon. You got 40 days. 40 days and God's taking this place down. I imagine that his voice kind of cracked some when he was preaching this. So he goes and we, you know, maybe he's preaching it every block or so as he's making his way a day's walk in to the city. And then after that, he finishes and Jonah leaves the city and goes up to a hill where he can see down over the city and he makes camp. Why does he do that? I, I believe he did it because he wants to watch God bring down, lower the boom on Nineveh. He wants to see it. So he's sitting up on this hill. He's uh, made camp and he's watching. I think he's thinking, you know what, it'll be worth 
all I went through to see what I'm about to see, to see God destroy this place. It'll be worth, you know, being almost drowned at sea, being swallowed by a fish, being vomited up. It'll be worth a long trip. It'll be worth it all if I can just watch God bring down the hammer of the Ninevites. So there he is, waiting and watching. And for the first time, probably in history, Nineveh does something right. And they repent. And word got around about the message, about this strange Hebrew prophet, and they repent. Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both Man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. So the king does a remarkable thing. I mean, he gets off his throne. He takes off his royal robes. He puts on sackcloth. He sits on a pile of ashes. Then he decrees all of Nineveh to do the same thing, even down to the livestock. Putting sackcloth on the livestock. And the king says, who knows? And this is a king who's used to controlling things, realizes this is something he cannot control. Who knows? Maybe God will turn from his anger and spare us. Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he'd bring upon them, and he did not do it. So the God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would rather see them turn to him and live, he saw the repentance in Nineveh, and I think God has a sigh of relief that he doesn't have to bring judgment. And he cancels the impending doom. He cancels it. And it's a happy day in heaven. I think God smiles. I think the angels rejoice, right? Jesus told us they rejoice over one person who repents. So the angels are singing. They're kicking up their heels. This is a big time in heaven. But Jonah's not rejoicing. Jonah's not even smiling. Jonah doesn't kick up his heels. He digs them in and sulks in anger. Jonah 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Jonah's like, I knew it, God. I knew you were going to do this. That's why I didn't want to go there in the first place. I know what you're like. I know that you're patient and kind. I know you forgive people. I knew you would do this. The Ninevites, you did it with them. See, Jonah believed the only good Ninevite was a dead Ninevite. 
So he sulked and he moped and he felt sorry for himself. But God so loved Jonah, he wants Jonah to understand how he is. So God causes, remember Jonah's still out on the hilltop overlooking the city. So God causes a plant to grow up over Jonah and give him shade because it was a harsh burning sun, the Bible tells us. So now he's got shade that God provided and he is enjoying it. And now he's smiling. Verse 5 of Jonah 4. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east. There he made a shelter for himself, sat under it in the shade, and he could until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plants. Ah, Jonah's enjoying the shade. So now Jonah's smiling. But the next day, God sent a worm to eat the plant to leave Jonah in the wind and the sun again. Verse 7, but God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. So now Jonah said, okay, God, just kill me. Just go ahead and kill me. And uh, so God says, uh, do you think you're right, Jonah, to be angry about the plant? Jonah says, yes, I'm angry, angry enough to die. Just kill me. Jonah 4, verse 10. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on a plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. So Jonah is angry. His shade is gone. That's what he's angry about. But here's what's interesting. is He makes out to God that he pities the plant. Jonah makes out to God that he pities the plant. So now God has Jonah where he wants him because he wants to teach Jonah something. He says, so you pity the plant? And, uh, but why do you pity the plant? Well, Jonah said, because a worm attacked it and killed it. You see what God's doing here? He's trying to help Jonah see where his pity for Nineveh comes from. He says, you pity the plant. Should I not pity Nineveh? But God, a worm destroyed the plant. Yes, Jonah. And a worm has been working to destroy the Ninevites. Reckon with the worm factor, Jonah. The Ninevites aren't the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. Reckon with the worm factor, Jonah. Reckon with the Satan factor. The Ninevites are blind they're blind. They're victims. Jonah 4, verse 11, it goes on to say, God says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Jonah reckoned with the worm factor. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of of the people of that city reckon with the worm factor. They're not the enemy, they're victims of the enemy. By the way, it reminds all of us that people, no matter how evil they are on this planet right now, they're not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. 
our enemy, the Bible tells us, is not flesh and blood, but is spiritual powers of darkness. They're not the enemy, they're POWs, prisoners of war. So Jonah's upset. He's upset and he's grieving over the loss of the plant that no longer gives him shade and pleasure. Should not God be upset over no longer having a city that can give him glory and pleasure? So God's saying to Jonah, okay, let me get this straight. You pity the plant. You didn't plant it. You didn't water it. You didn't cause it to grow. Shouldn't I pity Nineveh, who I made? This city who has over 120,000 lost people. What's interesting about the book of Jonah, it ends with a question. A question we don't know how Jonah answers. Ends, ends with a question. Should I not have compassion on all people, even evil people? That's the question. By the way, this is the clearest statement in the Old Testament that God loves the whole world. Even the most wicked people in the world. And he wants to save them, all people. God wants to save all people. No matter how bad they are, no matter what they've done. He doesn't want to destroy any of them. He doesn't want to. Here we see God seeking and saving the lost. No sinners too vile. No sinners too far gone that, that God doesn't want them saved. That's just how God is. And God's willing to go through all these extreme measures of getting his prophet, you know, back on track just so this message could be preached. What's interesting to me about the story is God spares Nineveh. Instead of Nineveh, instead of Jonah breaking out in the chorus, joy to the world, Jonah breaks out with Bahamut. Jonah might have been willing to sing joy to Israel, but he wasn't willing to sing joy to the world because he didn't want joy for the whole world. Jonah only wanted select people to get in on God's mercy and peace, people like himself, certainly not people like them. So the story ends without us knowing whether or not Jonah ever changed. But I think the question ends with a question for us, too. So how about you? Are there people that you would rather see judged than saved? Are you more like Jonah or like God in his heart for lost people? That's the question this sermon ends with, because that's the question this book ends with. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we just ask you to search our hearts today, each one of us, by your spirit. Lord, even bring to our, our mind's eye right now some maybe individual or some people group that we'd rather see judged than saved. Lord, we just ask that you would, would show us who those people are, and we just pray right now, Lord. Say, forgive us for not having your heart, Lord, for lost people, all kinds of lost people, evil people. And we pray today, Lord, for mercy. And even the people you're putting on our minds, we pray specifically for mercy to them. Even a, a face that might be flashing in front of us, we pray for mercy for them today. We want to line up with your heart for the whole world. And we pray for Grace Community Church that you give us more and more opportunities to impact more and more parts of the world. 
that most people don't value. More and more people, Lord, that most people in this country don't think are valuable at all, but you do. So we pray, we say, Lord, we'll go, we'll go, Lord, wherever you send us. We'll do whatever you call us to do. Or we'll go to those, we'll go after those that nobody else wants, Lord, because you want them and you love them. So, Lord, today we just pray that you would make our hearts more like your heart today and less like Jonah's heart. And you make us church more and more, Lord, that functions that way in greater, greater measure in the days to come. In Jesus' name.